Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. And for those of you who haven't come across us before, we're a design-led estate agency. In this podcast series, I'm talking to people we admire and asking them to pick their three favourite homes from anywhere in the world. We're aiming to show how a well-designed home can enhance your life and ultimately make you happier. My guest today is Abe Rogers, head of his namesake architecture and design studio, and yes, son to the other Rogers you might have heard of. Nature and nurture seem to have played equal roles in Abe's journey to becoming a designer, with two architect parents passing on the design genes and a childhood that was, in his words, marinated in design. But however it happened, Abe's work speaks for itself. Bold yet human-focused, colourful but livable, and always original. So just to paint the picture, we're here in your design studio in East London. How many people have you got working here? In London we have about 20 people, then about six people in Australia, in, in Melbourne. We collaborate with different people, shrink and expand on a marginal basis. And how do you describe what you do? Well, it's always quite hard. I mean, I think essentially we're interior designers, but we do a bit of architecture, we do a bit of furniture, we have graphics. We really try to be multidisciplinary, so we try to, you know, we have industrial designers, furniture designers, interactive designers within the team, but they don't all follow their discipline. So the graphic designer will work on a, a, a wall scheme or she'll put together concepts for living qualities. The industrial designer will work on detail within the architecture. So we try to, to borrow from different disciplines. We have artists coming through. So we try to be less singular than others. Possibly. That's interesting. My wife, Faye Toogood, who may have come across does exactly the same thing. Of course. Yeah, does exactly the same thing. So she likes to have a fashion designer working on a piece of furniture. And I, I agree with you, I think you get a much more interesting result, don't you? So what's your design process then? How do you, if you're going to start, let's say, an interior, what's your first step? What do you guys do? It really depends upon the client and it depends upon the brief to an extent and what it needs. So we start with trying to develop a concept. We use a lot of references, but we're always very, very clear that the importance of of referencing the references. So it's very far from Pinterest. We try to create something which has a certain amount of meaning. So often maybe it's looking at art, maybe it's looking at food, maybe it's looking at architecture, at poetry. We need the keys to get under the skin of the project. And we try to research and spend quite a lot of time at that point. For us, it's more important to invest at the beginning. So once we start going, we know where we're going. I'm very good at getting lost. So I, to use an analogy to say I start with a map and I map it all out would be, because you don't know where it's going to go, but yeah. I think it's investing in that beginning. Yeah. For me, a better analogy is maybe is cooking and the key is to get a really good base to your soup. And if that base is really strong, then everything that comes out after it will be, will be strong as well. I first came across your work, I think probably 20 years ago. I was at the World of Interiors as a, as a wide-eyed young editor and I remember this press release arrived on my desk and I think it was in the days of transparencies rather than anything digital. But there were these pictures of this space which was entirely blood red, including the ceilings. It was all gloss, wasn't it? And this was the interior, of course, of the Comte de Garçon store. Was that, I mean, tell me about that project. Was that what really launched your name, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that, that project totally launched our name. And I think we, you know, me and Shona met in the Royal College of Art in like 95 to 97. And we left the Royal College of Art and we very specifically had other jobs. So the studio could be about 
doing in things that we were interested in. We didn't have to design people's apartments, which is what others were doing. And I think through working for Ronnie Cook Newhouse, suddenly this extraordinary project arrived on our... The risk that Comte Garson and Ray Kawakuba took employing these two youngsters who had done nothing much beforehand except a few eccentric, conceptual, kinetic projects. But there we were, and we arrived, and we spent six months championing um, fashion, art design, and having these really funny, long-distance conversations with Comte de Garçon. The best moment, maybe, is when she said, it can't be red. And we, for three <laughs> weeks, said, but it has to be red. It's always been red. It's about red. It's about red. And then she said, I'm joking. I just wanted to see... And she literally wrote joking, and she wrote very few words. I just wanted to see your response if I said it couldn't be red. <laughs> and we, I think because we'd stuck so loyally to it, but also because we were young. And I think now, I'd go, sure, we'll move on, whatever. I can't... <laughs> you haven't got the energy for so many fights. But then, we so... Um, believed in the things that we did, that it was worth battling. Why, why was it red? It was red because red has the power of black, because red is the colour of blood, because red is the colour when fire is really hot. Red has the intensity. Of all the primary colours, it's the most powerful. And it's still a colour I'm really fascinated with. So we, we work across the spectrum on occasion, but we still use a lot of red. Colour is your thing, isn't it? I mean, we're in a room here which has got a yellow painted table, the carpet tiles are sort of orange leopard print, there's a you know, red-fronted cupboard over there. Why so many colours? Why so much colour for you? Well, I think there's also a brick wall. If you look at the brick wall, there's like a thousand colours in that. I suppose what we try to do is bring out colours to create clearer definition, quite influenced by Gestil, I guess, and the notion of of playing with these very strong, vibrant planes and, and seeing where it goes. But we like to think that colour is just one of the tools that we use. Everyone uses colour. Maybe we use more brighter colours than, than, than some others. Your, your wife certainly uses some pretty powerful colours. What's in this room is a collection. This is a table from the Royal Academy, from my dad's exhibition. That's a cabinet from somewhere else with a bit of avant laminate on it. So we just try to play and put things... I think we're not frightened of colour. I think maybe that is more the difference rather than... It is our only tool. Yeah, because another one of your projects I've been to is um, the Rainbow House on Portobello Road. That has a lot of colour. That definition. place is mad, isn't it? So <laughs> you, you, you've got, I mean, it's called the Rainbow House partly because of this spiral staircase you've got uh, where every tread is a different colour of the colour chart, isn't it? The truth is that we, in the end we had to do every two treads because we couldn't get okay. at that point 56 colours which we, could, we were happy with, so we had to conclude it to 26. But in a recent Maggie's that we did, the pop-up space, the rainbow, then we got, working with Mylands, we managed to make 56 colours, which okay. was a triumphant moment for us. Well, it also has a slide from the master bedroom down into the kitchen, presumably because the client couldn't wait for his coffee in the morning, or what was well, that Well, I think it's more because Victorian houses are very, very vertical, and so having worked all the way up, you want to come down a bit faster. Yeah. So I think it's more <laughs> that you could get down quickly. And the client was really wild and she liked fun and she was single at the time and had no kids and and this was the kind of a place for her to to move around in in, in different ways. So being the son of Richard and Sue Rogers, obviously very successful architects, was it inevitable that you would go into design and architecture yourself or not? Not at all. I I left school at 15 with, well, 16 with two O-levels, having taken them twice and having failed pottery twice, which I think is always people... And I'm quite a good potter now. But I was really... I could not get the fabric of passing exams. didn't make sense to me at all. Being quite dyslexic and quite rebellious, kicked out of many schools, I went off and became a cabinet maker, tried to smoke a lot of pot and just chill out and travel. And then I found myself back into design really more by instinct. When I was working in Liverpool, we were making things, but then when you make things, you have to design them. I'd 
been brought up really marinated in design, as I always say. So it kind of came an obvious way forward. And I discovered actually I was better at designing than making and many of the early things we made, the designs were much better than the actual production and things. Having failed maths, when I made a pyramid, I used 90 degrees and so it lay flat on the floor and would have to rapidly adjust the angles. I think I then applied to Manchester BA and didn't get in. I then applied to Royal College MA a few years later and didn't get in. But shortly after applying to Royal College of Art, I was installing a reception desk there and the head of course walked past me, remembered me and called me up the next day and said, a place has come up, do you want to come in? So by a series of kind of lucky coincidences, I ended up there. And in that two years, I really worked hard. And when everyone else was out partying endlessly, I'd suppose I spent enough of my 20s partying. I just, I, I worked and read and discovered people like Joseph Boyce, people like Donald Judd, Nikki Samphow, and this sort of really transformed what I saw as design could do and, and, and could be. And I met amazing students, Daniel Charney, Jonah Kitchen, Mark Bullymore, Ultimo Grito, to mention a few. So you described it as being marinated in design when you were growing up. I mean, obviously when you were a kid, your, your parents landed the Pompidou Centre gig with Renzo Piano, which must have been a pretty huge thing in your household. I mean, they obviously became very well-known very quickly, obviously hugely busy very quickly as well. What was that like for you growing well, up? I think I was more or less two when they won the Pompidou. My parents okay. were separated, so it was a slightly funny yeah. situation. And my dad went over to Paris, um, set up his studio, and we would travel there from time to time, always with those funny things that you used to have around your neck that you wore as a... Un, un, and I had older brothers who would take us. And it was great. And the story I would like to tell is when I went past the Pompidou as a building site and my dad said, look, son, this is what I'm building. I said, well, dad, but what are those squiggly things down the wall? And he said, oh, that's going to be a slide. And I thought, God, my dad is so cool. He's making a giant <laughs> building with all these slides. Maybe that's why I put a slide in the rainbow yeah. house. Yeah. But anyway... It was many years later that I discovered he was a liar and this was not a slide at all, but a staircase. Right. And he said it was because the client chased. I have a suspicion it was never going to be a slide. No. And it was a, but it was amazing to see this thing going on and to mm. see his energy and the discussion and suddenly to have this huge square naked block in the middle of Paris. Yeah. And then to learn what it really meant and what, how ahead of its time it was. Yeah. So in terms of your own career progression, I mean, you've just finished a Maggie's Centre, haven't you? Which is a really, really, must be a really big thing for you. Um, I mean, Maggie's Centres are amazing. They're, they are a series of world-class buildings where people suffering from cancer can go and recuperate in uplifting surroundings, which I think is such a brilliant idea. What was that project like? And what, you know, what do you think about design's power to uplift people in that way, I suppose? For me, that is without doubt been the most important project of my career. It was six years, and I'd say, you know, it's one of those projects which you so love doing that you kind of miss when it goes. And it feels so privileged to be able to spend so much time trying to understand how architecture can affect people. And each move you make or don't make, and, and when it's important to the design, and working with such brilliant clients as Marsha Blakeman and, and Laura, who have worked with the greatest architects to try to decode this experience of visitors who are affected by cancer or who have cancer and how we can inspire an architecture that uplifts their feelings. And to say that our design uplifts their feelings is to be too arrogant to say, but we know that giving them light 
allowing them to, to pour in, using a little bit of color, having tactility, avoiding anything being metallic, having, making, you know, we hand carved all the door. We can start to create a palette of experiences, which mm. definitely does make people smile or feel more um, engaged with life than they, they might otherwise be. It's been open for six months and it's been very successful as far as how people have, have responded to it. But I think for us, the really important thing was designing it from the inside first. So trying to work out the diagram of how people would use the space, how the light would enter the space. Trying to create, you know, Maggie's writes very passionately about the, the WCs being a place to escape to as well as a place of bodily function. So they become almost like a chapel to go and cry in if you need to. Yeah. So if you're going to be crying in a, in a toilet, you don't want to see horrible corners or naked pipes or darkness. You want to see natural light streaming in. You want some colour, you want some softness and you want some thought. And more than anything, it's, a, it's that level of thought about the user's experience that is the, at the core of, of a Maggie's. Yeah, it's very much about the gardens as well, isn't it? Can you tell us about the gardens? Well, we had, again, the great privilege to work with Pete Ordorf, who is the most extraordinary artist who happens to use plants as his paints, if you would like, who really understood the architecture that we were created. And he built a garden that would, would talk to our building and, and our building talks to his garden. So it becomes these different elements, the interior talking to the garden, the garden talking to the exterior, the exterior talking to the interior. So everything is hopefully having a conversation. So when people enter it, that conversation is, is, is continued. Thanks, Abe. So let's move on to your three choices of living spaces that you very kindly made for us, which I think are fascinating choices. We were talking about it on the way here. I think it's really brilliant. Very good contrast in here. So the first one you've chosen is the Tarot Garden in Tuscany by the French artist Nikki de Saint-Fal, who you mentioned earlier. Why have you chosen this? Tell us about this one. When I discovered the artist's ability to interpret architecture or to create sculptures which became enterable, it seemed to me to defy all the rules that we live by. The notion of the straight walls, the craft that is attached to the placing of every piece of mosaic, the celebration of colour, the use of, of, of mirror as being a way, a new form of architectural life. To, to an extent. The idea that your bedroom is in the sculpture's breast, that your the kitchen is in the depths of the belly, you know, these use of these these mirrors. So you walk into these spaces and that rather than the space getting smaller by the constraints of the architecture, the space literally expands in a most extraordinary way. Um, so, so just to be clear to people that don't know it, basically she built these crazy kind of monuments, these sculptures that are so large you can inhabit them. And she lived in one of them herself, didn't she, for many years while she was creating a garden. Nikki Sanfell's work was always fascinated by, the, by the, the human body and particularly by the kind of voluptuous woman. And so she, um, as well as occasional dinosaurs and other things, so she blew this woman up to, a, to an architectural scale. And then she created a series of monuments all relating to the tarot cards and the, the justice. And then she would bring in Tingley, who would only work in black, to create these kinetic interventions that sat on top of it. So you have these different languages going. And throughout the whole story, she talks about different artists laying different tiles. And the craftsmanship that you see everywhere, when we say tiles, tile wood you would imagine is square and flat, but these are three-dimensional, never square. It is craft of these coming together. And it is such the opposite of the architecture that we see going up today in Hackney, which is endless slip brick walls, low ceilings, unloved spaces a little bit, 
And this is about the celebration of life and creating a, a space which is designed around her belief in how we could, as a kind of programme for living. And I suppose, you know, within the Maggies, within uh, Comte de and what we've always tried to do is challenge the perception of the, of the norm and to find different ways to get fashion to respond to red. We've had lots of people a bit shocked that we made the, the Maggie Centre this bright red because it signifies blood, but it also signifies celebration and it signifies power and intensity. And as a beacon, the Maggie's from the outside, whereas the inside it's very warm. But that is very much off the point. I think it takes the artist to really challenge the architect. And maybe because of always not being an architect myself, but always being surrounded by them, I've always had this dialogue between architecture and play and art and the spaces that sits in between. So, I mean, in, internally, it's basically like living in a disco ball or something, isn't it? I mean, is there anything we can... Well, I don't think it's like living in a disco ball. So a disco ball rotates yeah. where, this, where you're surrounded by this mosaic of mirror. So you're playing with all the... As the light enters, it moves through the spaces in different ways. And in 2009, we designed a, a um, fashion shop for the same client that we did the Rainbow House for, which was very much inspired by those principles, bit larger mirrors. 2006, sorry. Have you brought any of that into a domestic interior? Do you think you can... I mean, that's very fantastical, isn't it? Can you live with that kind the of... The Rainbow design? House is not a million miles from it. The Rainbow yeah. House has windows on every side, including the ceilings, and the, where, where the solid wall is, it's all, it's all mirror. And that can, so I think, you know, we use a lot of mirror... Um, in different ways to expand and to pick up and to see and to create portholes into space. They're quite magical, inexpensive things. Okay, very good. Moving on to your second choice, it couldn't be more different really, could it? It's a very right-angled, unashamedly modernist house called View Hill House in Australia, uh, which was designed by John Denton of Denton Corker Marshall. So why have you chosen this one? It's a very recent project. I work a lot with John and with his wife, Con, who's an artist and jeweller. And for me, it's one of the most magical places to be, this square box that contains the living diagram that sits on top of this incredible landscape where you see no architecture for miles around. And this box opens up to the countryside and closes away, depending upon the climate, the inhabitation, the time. And then you sleep on this giant cantilever so you're floating above space. And in the wind, you feel this movement really? of, the, of the architecture. You tend to sleep on the inside of the bed because you feel you're <laughs> less, you know. I, I'm not doubting the structural capabilities, but I love this notion of movement. I spent quite a lot of time sailing, and so I suppose maybe I like sleeping. But I think it's an incredibly brave project. I think it also has a fantastic finesse and rigour in its delivery. I find it very interesting how the square box can have such a beautiful relationship to the, to the flowing landscape. I think the ground floor is like an extruded matchbox almost, isn't it? Clad in core 10. And then the first yeah, floor, I like to say it wrapped steel. in core 10 more than clad, because I think right. it becomes, it's an integral layer where the cladding okay. sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. Um, but they've perforated that core 10, and then the, the core 10 opens up yeah. to then allow light through and for you to pass in and out of the building. And then the cantilevered box on top, is is black steel, I think, isn't it? It's also core ten, but it continues. It? But it's that's more living and, and studio up up higher. Okay. And you have these two swaying swings. They become like wings in, yeah. in 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 a way. So obviously, it's brutal and romantic, and I find that quite interesting. That combination. I love it when Buddhism becomes romantic. It's quite. It's pretty minimal as well, isn't it? I mean, can you can you live like that? Could you live minimally like that? Do you think? Yes, I do. I mean, my house is quite 
minimal. It has a bit is of colour in it. But it's, I try, you know, I think removing the unnecessary is quite important. Why? And certainly in Nikki Sanfao's, you see no clutter. I mean, it's a museum now. But I think because you get lost, if you were too much stuff around in this room, which is a bit of a storeroom at times, but it makes you a bit uneasy. And there's no point, you design things and then you fill them full of junk. I don't know, you, you lose the essence. Now, that's not to say there's some amazing houses with amazing objects all over the place. And I, you know, I love visiting Willow Road, which is not nearly as minimalist as his architecture is. And you see a, a lot of these objects, you know, and, and amazing pieces of furniture. But I'm very energetic, and so I need space. I need to be able to see comes. So is it about surrounding yourself with things that are important to you? Yes, I think that is exactly what it is about. Rather than clutter. <laughs> rather than, than, than the unnecessary. And getting lost, and I, I suppose part of it's being dyslexic, if there's too many things, I feel like I'm drowning in, in things. And so it's that need of being able to, to see clearly. So talk to me about your dyslexia. How does that influence what you do? I mean, it must define everything. How do you see the world through your dyslexia in a way? Well, I see the world very clearly, I think, and I think us dyslexic are very bad at spelling, but they're very good at seeing and mm. very good at being able to visualise in our, in our heads. We lack partitions and borders, but we have lots of shortcuts through being able to process things like colours, flavours, materials, spaces. So I can spend a lot of time sitting in my funny head, walking across London, as I like to do now, and imagine the things that we are trying to design and to reconfigure them in, in different ways. So for me, entering something like the Tarot Garden makes complete sense to me. It doesn't seem like a, a crazy idea. It seems like a very rational way of, of creating a different type of space. Likewise, building a, a, this cantilever cube that John does so well on top of his mountain also seems like a very rational choice. Whether it's the Rainbow House or whether it is Maggie's, they're all through a series of what I believe very rational thoughts, though many giants have called us wacky along the way. And to me, I'm always astounded and horrified by that because I see myself as being very rational, but my rational is different from other people's rational. <laughs> so I suppose that's where the... Now I can laugh at it, but it used to quite annoy me. Like, how dare you say that I'm, I'm wacky? I'm really sensible and rigorous and, and hard-working. That's, no, that's really interesting to hear cause, because I think when you are a colourful character and your work is colourful, I think people, people do sometimes associate that with wackiness, don't they? Yeah. Inevitably. But what you're saying is there's an order and a rigour to it, which, is, which I think has to underpin everything, doesn't it? I think there is, a, yeah, I, yeah, completely there is an order and a, and, and a rigour, a different order and a different rigour, maybe, to, yeah. to, to other people. But we have a very strong work ethic in the studio, and we really work things through, and we try to, you know, we really enjoy each other, and we sit around a table and cook and talk and eat a lot. But at the end of the day, everything needs to be in the right place, because, mm. you know, I think... When things go wrong is when they're in the wrong place. Yeah. But it's deciding what is the right place that is the heart of the question. Okay, so moving on to your third choice, it's Hillwood House in Truro in Cornwall. So this was designed in 1975 by your mother, Sue Rogers, and her second husband, John Miller, um, as a holiday home, I believe. Is that right? Yes, correct. So did you used to holiday there? I saw it being built much more than I saw the Pompidou being built. My grandma used to live across the way from it. It's nestled amongst all the trees. It's a complete glass box. It's super transparent. It doesn't contain heat at all. And as a child, it's like a wondrous, magical place. 
you know, when it rains, the rain pours onto the glass. You look up and see it. You know, when it's sun, the sun pours through. It's before building regs, so there's no, there's no guarding to stop you rolling off. So it's just this really naked, extraordinary house that I think probably has been more influential to me from, as a design perspective than anything else. As far as, the, you know, I really love, maybe we're talking about kind of minimalism, but maybe more than minim- reducing and reducing what what you need to, in order to, to, to create a house. And that, I think, is, a, is an amazing reductive diagram. And, the, you know, we talk about inside out, but this glass building in a forest, you just open the doors and you, and you roll outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and you roll into the grass and you roll down the hill into the sea, if it's high tide and if it's low tide, into the mud, which is also <laughs> quite exciting, quite <laughs> tactile. And I suppose it's that smelly mud and then going into this very green interior, which is kind of smellless, but though a little bit smelly sometimes because it gets... Yeah, cool, in it, um, which is re- I find really extraordinary, yeah. and that is a real play with colour. It plays with the green from the trees that are around it, and then this extraordinary orange floor, which comes from flowers and fruit. I guess I don't know. I've never asked them why the floor is orange. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess was the idea that you had these two families coming together. So your mother's family and then her new husband's family and, and the house was sort of representative of that process, do you think? Yeah, well, that's like, I mean, the house, as I say, it was naked. It was, it was a house which had sliding doors, no walls. So it was really like camping. So for your stepsisters and your, you know, who all which we were quite close, but you, you really lived it together. We all would laugh at John snoring through the night or, you know, <laughs> their little, you know, toilet noises. So it became this very communal place. And I maybe I've become more communal in my living pattern from that. One has to be nervous that the house guests you have, because you need to be able to embark in this very open portfolio. But as a piece of design, I think it, for me it's really legendary, and it, it's, it's one of the, the kind of DNAs that really underpins the way that I, that I think. So do you think that open plan living like that works? Well, I think it depends. As a holiday home, definitely. Yeah. Um, why because there's more of a kind of siege mentality and you can all just yeah and also because it's for you can all live together for, for so long for bit, I also yeah. lived in my dad's first house which is you know which I love but I have to say after 17 years the open planningness and having teenage children did all start to kind of get on so I think it's within reason to, to a degree and it's true that my house now in a converted workshop in Hackney, has lots of quite heavy doors that swing cut, and, and you, you know, does it? So it's adaptable. It's adaptable, but it's but it's, but it's quite. The up downstairs is very open, but the residential part is is very room and walls. So maybe I've become conservative in my in my um, latter part of my of, of my life. I mean, I always think that the most successful living spaces have a variety of different sizes of space and their volumes and. You know, ultimately, for entertaining and for living, you need you need volume, need light, don't you? And then I think for uh, retreating into your workspace or your bedroom, I think you need a contrast. You need something with lower ceilings that's more cosseting, don't you? I think in the Maggie's, which is not a residential project at all, but it's designed around different personalities and different experiences and not knowing who to go into the room. We try to create these very different spaces. So we have low spaces, which are quite dark and kind of, Rothko reds and we have large tall vertical spaces with yellow fireplaces we have horizontal spaces the idea being that everyone should be able to find a space that they're happy and we need to create different types of space for different types of people to an extent 
the extrovert, the introvert, the sensitive. And the same person can be all of those things on a different day. And I think that's also true in, in a house is we need to try to, to unpack these different emotions for different times. Getting back to Pillwood House, it's an upside down house, isn't it? Isn't the bedrooms downstairs and the living upstairs? Is that right? Yes, completely. Is that upside down? Well, exactly. Is it upside down? What's your take on that? Well, you li- it's on top of a hill to an extent. Yeah. And so you go directly out of the bedrooms into the grass. Yeah. And upstairs has a raisin piece of land. So you go out directly to the kind of barbecue and the, and the higher table. But it's also inside out and around and about. So everything layers over, over each other. So I think it's a more complex than a, than a normal house. And the dog will run over the beds and he'll run upstairs and the kids will run through the beds and up and everything gets entangled and the duvets travel to the kitchen. And it's a, it's a house that all the rules get broken in, which for me, maybe it's part of the excitement of its, of its architectural merits. Yeah. So speaking of breaking rules, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about 22 Parkside in Wimbledon, which is the house that your father designed for his parents. And I know that you lived there, didn't you, for a number of years. So this is a single-storey modernist house, happens to be painted bright yellow, and it's been donated to Not Harvard. unlike this table. Not unlike this table. Richard Rogers Yellow, I would call it. It's now been donated to Harvard, hasn't it? It's used for residencies. What was it like to, to live there? I mean, tell us about that. For me, Parkside was an amazing project because I knew it as my grandmother's house. When I went to Royal College of Art, I lived in the kind of granny flat and helped her and then when she died we moved into the to the house and I think originally we moved in there temporarily but we really fell in love with it with the living experience with being able to open these doors and allow the lights and the, the grass in and in fact when I was having lunch with my business partner Ernesto and I was, told him I was doing this he was really surprised I hadn't chosen Parkside yeah well that's p- partly why I asked you it was interesting yeah I think maybe because I lived there for, for a more extended kind of length of time became less magical and I had more as a diagram I think it's phenomenal I think it is it's an amazing building at the way you can continues and ends these very simple portholes that encounter it but I suppose it it's the romance when you get to know something too well it's hard to you know whereas Cornwall represents this magical land this kind of fairy land home is a different place and so I think it's it's hard. I couldn't have put both in them because I, yeah. do I only love things designed by my parents? <laughs> so I had to choose one. And, I, and I, as I say, Pillwood is the, most, is the most magical. But I learned a huge amount about architecture and design through living in, in Parkside, without doubt. And I think its magic is it's how few elements it consists of. Mm. But that's true of both those projects and of John Denton's house up on, in, in the Yarra Valley. And they're, yeah. they're all, you know, they're, these are all quite reductive pieces. So this is, this is Strength, a, confidence and delivery. A more general question then, what does home mean to you? What, what is home for Abe? Home for me, in my latter life, I'm really become obsessed about cooking. So home for me really is, is a kitchen and it can be a kitchen and, you know, and it's voices and I have a little three-year-old, I have a 19-year-old and a 21-year-old and it's them coming and going. I have a fantastic partner, Anna, it's conversations, it's around the kitchen, it's around the dining table seldom watching TV, but you know, sitting on a sofa discussing things. It's voices, it's tactility. I think in, for me, the interior is about being tactile. Mm. It's about the way it sounds, not just how it looks. Mm. So we're very interested in the way things feel, smell, bounce, record. And maybe that's kind of the, the love of the kitchen. 
Yeah. In my own spaces, I never put an extraction because I enjoy the smell of the kitchen. Now, when you're cooking too much chili and it all gets a bit hot in the eyes, <laughs> then everyone has to kind of run away and the kids get cross with me. But it's part of, it's part of life. And it's nice to be able to smell what you cooked last night. Or to, no, I changed my <laughs> jumper this morning. But, but certainly when you're in Cornwall and you're barbecuing, you have that smell yeah, yeah, yeah. that follows you. I love it. I enjoy your Instagram account because it's basically you dissecting red mullet and isn't it <laughs> i think red mullet's one of the greatest fishes by the way but yeah yes. no but you can see your your absolute obsession with food really comes across so you obviously see how i mean the first thing you said when i asked you about home was cooking yeah obviously your stepmother ruth rogers runs the river cafe i gathered am i right in saying the whole rogers clan decamps to italy every summer and yeah more or less and and so there's a big connection with italy isn't there it, it would seem that food is really central to everything that your family's about. Is that right? Yeah, oh, yes, completely. My grandmother was an amazing cook. Yeah. My mother was a, is a great cook, amazing cook. And then being brought up with people like Rose Gray around me and Nesta, my business partner's mum is maybe the most inventive of, of all, who would turn supper into the next day's breakfast in this, in this continuous recycling of foods. But you can understand where they'd come from. And I think there's a huge interrelationship between food and design. And, and, you know, I find it's a very helpful metaphor. And then, like, you know, we work internationally a lot. We work in Thailand. And one can't work in Thailand and not get really excited about the food and then get involved in cooking there in some ways. We work, you know, I work quite a lot in China. And, and likewise, you know, where it's, you know, pork and octopus stew or tasting some amazing dim sum, you know, these things and these textures and I think that for me, the, the thing that I love about cooking, as opposed to design, is in cooking, you can control everything. You go to the shop, right. you know, I know my local fishmonger, we're doing projects with him, Freedom Founder, you know, and we can buy an amazing fish, I can take it back, I can cook it, and I can deliver it, and I can visualise it. With architecture, you have to let go all the time. And then you go into these quite complex contractual languages, and it's much harder to control which is why Maggie's took six years to design and a meal you know the most extravagant meal takes less than six hours to cook so I suppose it's quite interesting I find you know I before that I was a furniture maker so it's this tactility of the from the hands to the mouth to the eye thank you very much indeed pleasure thank you this episode was produced by Terry Stiasny So that you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and we would love you to rate and review to help other people find us as well. Head to our website, themodernhouse.com, where you'll find more information about the homes discussed today.